Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Here's Dickow from the deep corner for three. Uh-oh, uh-oh. It's on now. Downtown Dan connects. Every morning when I'm working out, I'm listening to your podcast. Keep up the great work. I mean, I've seen Dan Dicko hit some big shots in the NCAA tournament. <laughs> I got to salute you, man. Like, I've been watching you since I was in high school trying to mimic all your moves. Welcome to today's episode of The ISO with myself, your host, Dan Dicko, NSB Live Sports. Typically, we host conversations, interviews with experts in the field of sports. Occasionally, uh, we just kind of either do a mailbag episode or we do a topic monologue for the day, something that uh, is current in the world of sports, or maybe I get a number of uh, direct messages on social media or in my email um, asking about certain scenarios or experiences that I may have had during the course of my playing career, my short coaching career, all of all of one year in the NBA as a player development coach with Portland Trailblazers, or maybe uh, some of my experiences as a broadcaster. So today's due to all of the uncertainty in the NBA world of coaching with, with all the coaches that have been fired, all the coaches that have resigned, most recently, Rick Carlisle, the Dallas Mavericks. Um, I've been asked a lot recently about the differences between coaches um, that I've played for, whether at the high school, the college, or at the NBA level, and kind of what the difference in those roles are. And so I thought I would kind of touch on that really quickly today and, and share um, some of my thoughts uh, about what makes a good coach or uh, some of the characteristics of some of the coaches that I've uh, been around. So I guess we'll just start at the high school level. Uh, I had two different high school coaches uh, when I was at Prairie High School in Vancouver. Um, Both of them I thought were tremendous people. Uh, One of them, my second high school coach, Eric York, is a very close friend, somebody that I consider a mentor to this day. We we talk quite frequently. Um, His family and and my family uh, get together whenever we can. Um, and he's somebody that's really impacted my life in a positive way. But my first high school coach um, was a great person. He was a great teacher. Uh, he really wanted what was best for the players on his team. But at the same time, he, to put it bluntly and, and honestly, to put it fairly, he did the bare minimum to make the basketball program just be average. So uh, there wasn't a big emphasis on a summer program. Um, there was only um, there were there was minimal open gyms. There was really it was essentially just hey here's tryouts. We're going to work hard during the course of the year, and this is what uh, our program entails. And so as a freshman, um, that's all I was exposed to. I was thinking that that was the norm. Um, and really looking back at it, uh, the change with him resigning after my freshman year and 
Eric Yort, who I just had mentioned taking over the Prairie High School basketball program, was a game changer for me, quite honestly, in giving me opportunities and giving me uh, insight in how to um, kind of achieve and reach the goals that I had in the game of basketball from a very young age. So when Eric Yort took over at the end of my freshman year, he came in and he had a plan for our high school basketball program. It was a plan from this is how we're going to run our summers with practices, with camps, with playing in tournaments. Uh, and in the month of June, we are going to be focused on our team, our basketball program of Prairie High School. Um, and so we started to create a culture of work and guys that wanted to, to be together, um, helping each other improve individually, but really looking at the big picture of a team of how we could get better. In addition to that, he had... Uh, because of his, his background uh, coming from the Seattle area and being really well connected, um, what's called now, what is now called the AAU scene up there, it was BCI basketball at the time, uh, where there was very limited uh, summer travel teams. He was well connected with that, so he understood that if you had a high-level talent or you had a, the ability to play at the next level, you needed to be involved uh, with these certain teams and so he really helped put me in a position uh, to be able to go out and, and be a part of those and really helped navigate my recruiting he helped navigate um, you know my summer AAU schedules uh, and so he was a huge blessing uh, to me at that time in my life um, so two examples of high school coaches and, and how um, they worked for me I, I think one of the things that is an important factor to realize for uh, high school coaches. There are some tremendous high school coaches that, that I have come across, both in the state of Washington as well as nationally with my work for, for SB Live. Um, and there are some high school coaches that, quite frankly, have the knowledge and the organizational skills and the, um, the philosophies built in and the ability to make in-game adjustments um, that they could be at the college level. And they could be at the NBA level, but that's not where their passion lies. That's not where their comfort level lies, maybe due to their uh, family values or not that college coaches or NBA coaches don't have family values, but it's what they feel is best for them and best for their life. And I really uh, respect and admire a lot of those coaches because, as I said, many of them are good enough to coach at a quote-unquote higher level. Um, maybe they feel they want to impact the kids in their formative years um, which is what Eric Yort at Prairie really also tried to impress upon uh, our group at Prairie High School is, you know, we want you to improve. We want you to be a part of a team. We want you to, to you know, focus on the improvement of self and team, um, knowing that these lessons and in, in this um, responsibility that we're teaching now, this organizational commitment is going to pay off for you down the road um, when you get to college and you become a student at a higher level institution or you have a job or you have a family. And uh, I think one of the biggest things that high school coaches can do is teach at a young age both the love of the game, the belief in self, um, and not necessarily, they all want to win, but the concern, they're many times more concerned um, about the big picture of a kid and where how they can get someone um, pointed in the right track if maybe you know their home life is is a challenge or a struggle or maybe there's a kid with a ton of potential um, and they don't 
maybe the kid doesn't believe in themselves and that high school coach helps bring that out of them and achieve something greater than maybe the kid thought was possible you know moving to you know the college um game uh, i played for uh, quite frankly i think two really good coaches bob bender at the university of washington was a very good coach um he was very passionate which i think is important in any career that you decide to go upon um but at times he was pretty emotional with with how we would coach our teams and that tended to have uh, an impact on the assistant coaches and, and how practice would be run. It would have an impact on how guys would play. Uh, it would have an impact on you make a mistake, you look over your shoulder or think you're going to come out. Um, you know, one of my biggest disappointments or frustrations um, for my time at the University of Washington, um, you know, was, and in, in obviously looking back 20-some years later, you know, you, I can say it was a mistake that I went to UW, but on, in all honesty, uh, it would not, I would not have been prepared or as hungry to have uh, as much success as I was able to have at Gonzaga or enjoy it as much. Um, because when I was committed to University of Washington, uh, Coach Bender recruited me in one way. When you got on campus, the relationship completely changed. And uh, you hear you hear that when you go through the process. You see that when you're there. Now you see it as an outsider. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of coaches do change their relationship or they change their um, emphasis on a relationship from recruit to current player. And, and many times that is, that is a, a difficult thing to see, especially for someone like myself who went through that. Um, like I said, that prepared me to get to my time at Gonzaga. And I initially I had committed to Dan Monson with Coach Few, um, kind of being um, that lead assistant. And shortly thereafter, uh, Coach Monson left to go to Minnesota, and Coach Few slid uh, into that head coaching position, which is something that, you know, when I was thinking about transferring and knowing I was going to go to Gonzaga, all the current players on that roster and that team, Casey Calvary, Richie Fromm, Matt Santangelo, they had nothing but high praise to say for Coach Few and making comments along the lines of, if Monson were to leave, they're in terrific hands because Coach Few uh, works right alongside Coach Monson and, and they share a lot of the responsibilities and that Coach Few uh, was a tremendous coach. Lo and behold, that is the that was the case. Um, Coach Few has taken Gonzaga's program to unprecedented heights. Coach Few is a future Hall of Fame coach, um, and and Coach Few is somebody that when I look at coaches and the the outward uh, the outward uh, presentation that they give, it is unbelievably competitive, but it is unbelievably positive, and it's next play motivating. Yeah, he's going to he's going to, you know, break your game down uh individually, he's going to break the team day, game down uh in workouts and in practice. Um and practice is the time to do that. But the time you step onto a court for a game, you very rarely see negative emotion from coach few. You're going to get some negative emotion, and you're going to get some some constructive criticism uh during practices, but that's to prepare you for a game. So you can harken back and look, look back to comments or drills or situations that, that you or a team were put in to be able to prepare you for, for instances that happen in a game. And when that game happens, 
Coach Few is, again, one of the best at having guys be in the moment, playing with a lot of passion and a lot of uh, positive energy. You know, uh, next time you have a chance to watch a Gonzaga game, whether you go back and watch them uh, from a past season or this upcoming year, if you were to watch Coach Few on the sideline, he is very upbeat. He is clapping as every shot goes up. Uh, his emotion uh, and his kind of outlook to everybody else is very positive because he knows the second a shot goes up, he can't turn in disgust. Um, because that's not going to impact uh, whether the ball goes in or not. That's not going to positively impact any of the current players in that game or even on the bench watching for that reaction um, to see him in a negative light is can cast doubt and, and cast a little bit of hesitancy on, on, a, on a player that is in the game or about to go in the game. And as a basketball player, the last thing you want to do is look over and feel as if in the moment your coach is second guessing. And I think that's one of the biggest takeaways that I've ever taken from Coach Few is um, you're in the game, you get out there and you be in attack mode. You've done, you should feel as though you've ever done everything you can to prepare yourself for that moment. And you can't second guess and judge whether you got enough shots up in the off season or whether you didn't read your scouting report well enough for the game. You just need to go out and attack and in the moment. And I think he's, he's a tremendous coach at that attacking in the moment and being positive in the moment you know when I look at the NBA um, and the coaching carousel is honestly the best way to put it uh, there, there's a reason uh, NBA coaches and their length of staying in one organization in one spot for an extended period of time is not very good I mean, there's very few coaches over the last 20, 30 years you can look at and say, hey, they're 10-plus years in one place. You know, the ones that quickly come to mind, Jerry Sloan with Utah, Popovich with San Antonio, uh, Rick Carlisle, who I had just mentioned at the start with the Dallas Mavericks, just, um, you know, resigned after 13 years or so with Dallas. Um, and I think a big part of it is, one, professional sports is win at all costs, and it's a win now mentality as opposed to a develop and get to where we have a chance to have sustained excellence. Uh, whereas in college, you see, you know, coaches have the ability to, to build it um, slowly over time. And then they have also the ability to kind of earn credibility or earn a couple bad years uh, amongst their fan base or amongst their uh, athletic department heads, where in the pro sports, it's a win at all, win now at all cost type of mantra, um, and I think that really uh, hurts a lot of young players as they're searching their game to find their game at the next level. I think it hurts a lot of coaches in being able to develop and institute a philosophy that maybe at this moment in time isn't great for the roster that they have, but it will be in in two or three seasons. Um, you know, it's the, the another big adjustment. All coaches in the NBA, not all, but the majority of coaches at the NBA have such a high X and O level of knowledge, of circumstances, of, uh, you know, end of clock game management, of rotational patterns, all this. They're, they're all very good at that. I mean, they wouldn't continuously um, have a job in the NBA if they didn't. Now, on that comment, there are coaches that at the NBA level that, 
you know, don't put in the time, don't put in the work, uh, haven't grown the way that maybe uh, they should have. But that's a, another conversation for another day. But for the most part in the NBA, uh, your job is to, to kind of manage um, 15 separate businesses, 15 diff- different entities, guys that have their own personal agendas. Um, you know, they're all trying to have the longest, most successful career that they have um, so that they can provide for their families um, financially as well as um, set themselves up for, for future, whether it's they want to get into coaching or they want to get into business. And so the best NBA coaches are able to kind of manage those 15 separate businesses and entities and the job is to get as many of those 15 to buy in for a common goal as possible now you do that by having a a solid culture that's been put in place you've also do, do that by you know having a proven track record of doing it for example somebody comes into san, uh, san antonio with greg popovich as the coach they're not going to flip the script on Popovich and R.C. Buford and, and that front office and kind of get things to be uh, done in their way. No, team, players are going to have to conform to the, the larger group. Um, and it kind of goes along the lines of, you know, you can have a knucklehead or two on your team and the rest of the team and, and the culture will be able to uh, convert, not, might not be the right word, but conform uh, probably is a better word, um, but the second you have three or four knuckleheads, they're going to take over, and, and it's going to be a long, hard road for that coach to really be able to manage and coach that team uh, properly to have success. Dan Dickow here for Moink Meat. Moink was founded by an eighth-generation farmer who's featured on Shark Tank. Host Kevin O'Leary said it's the best bacon he's ever tasted. And I tend to agree. And Jamie Simonoff, creator of the Ring Video Doorbell, invested in Moink. Why do just four companies control 80% of the U.S. meat industry? Because big food crushes the little guy. You can help change that with moinkbox.com. Why are 97% of the chicken served in the U.S. dipped in chlorine? Simple. Because big food doesn't have the same quality standards as the family farm. That's why you need moinkbox.com. The best bacon, the best steak, the best chicken, and the best salmon you'll ever eat won't come from the grocery store. You'll only find it on the family farm and caught by independent Alaska fishermen. That's why you need moinkbox.com. Join the moinkbox.com movement today. Go to moinkbox.com slash believe right now. And listeners to this show will get free bacon for a year with every box ordered. That's right. Free bacon for a year. That's one of the best years ever. That's one year of the best bacon you'll ever taste, but only for a limited time. Spelled M-O-I-N-K box.com slash believe. That's moinkbox.com. Dot com slash believe. Moink meat is so delicious. It's awesome. I think you will love it too. Get Moink right now. I mentioned, you know, all NBA coaches have a ton of 
X's and O experience, but there, there, there's less reliance on the X and O's uh, as there is on the managing of those 15 separate businesses. There, there's a lot of um, managing experience and, and communication that needs to go in to get guys to buy into their role. Um, for example, a lot of times if you're the ninth, 10th man or 11th man on an NBA roster, many times you're as good as that 6th, 7th, or 8th man. Many times. Not all, but many times. Um, but a coach has to put together a uh, a kind of substitution pattern or a rotation that they feel fits best to put them in a chance to win. And many times that 9th, 10th, or 11th guy, as I mentioned, might be as good as a 6th, 7th, or 8th guy on the team. Um, but they don't get minutes. But how do you keep them involved? Uh, how do you keep them not rocking the boat in a negative way but pushing the boat in a positive way so the team can continue to play well? Um, and so that's why I think it's so important for NBA coaches to be able to manage a roster with rotations and get guys to blend into a philosophy that they believe in um, whether it includes them playing big minutes or not. I mean, myself as a player, I know that you know the year that I had a chance to start 40 games, it was a whole heck of a lot easier to stay engaged and positive and emotionally into what was going on, even though we didn't win, as opposed to some of the times where, you know, maybe I didn't play as much as I wanted. Well, I can say I didn't, pl- I didn't play as much as I wanted or I felt I deserved or needed. Um, and the best coaches are able to understand, um, even if it's with a short conversation here or there with those guys that are um, not as involved minutes-wise, rotationally-wise, uh, as the other guys to keep them on the same page. You know, in looking at the NBA coaches that I've played for, you know, I'll kind of go through a rundown of each of them and, and kind of share, you know, something that was that still stands out to the, about those coaches to this day. Uh, many of them are still very high-level coaches in the NBA. Many of them are, are uh, still in the college game or went back to the college game. Um, so we'll just kind of start, you know, with the first co- coach that I had in, in the NBA as a summer league coach was Eric Musselman. And he is now, he, he went from the NBA. Um, he had a, he was a longtime NBA assistant, had uh, opportunities as a head coach with the Golden State Warriors. And then um, he ended up going back to the college ranks, was an assistant coach at Arizona State, LSU, before becoming a head coach. Uh, at Nevada, and now he's doing an unbelievable job at Arkansas. Uh, I think the biggest thing that I learned right off the bat, as he was the head coach of uh, Summer League right after my uh, being drafted in 02, was his preparation um, and his knowledge was just so off the charts. It was, I mean, Coach Few, I was lucky to play for a very good college coach, someone who will be in the Hall of Fame. But the preparation and the knowledge right off the bat from Eric Musselman with Summer League just blew me away. And the, the amount of reading that he shared with us every day before practice even started. We're stretching, we're talking before things get going. And he's talking about the seven or eight different articles that he read um, that morning um, because he felt that it was important for each player, whether you're going to be on a roster or you're fighting for an opportunity to, to earn a European contract, you needed to know the business of basketball and who was playing where and what coach was coaching this and what was going on in all these different areas. So I learned really early on about the knowledge of the game and how powerful and important that is from Eric Musselman. Uh, and then, like I said, it, the passion that he coaches with uh, is really fun to see and, and watch. 
Um, you know, then Long Kruger was head coach early in my rookie year. Uh, unfortunately, he was was fired um, by by the front office uh, about 25 games or so in my rookie year. That was disappointing for me because Lon was the only coach during my NBA career that took enough interest in myself and my wife, took us out to dinner, tried to get to know us, tried to get us comfortable uh, in an NBA setting, in an NBA city, with an NBA travel itinerary. Um, And so to this day, that meant a lot to me that that Lon went out of his way and really tried to make myself as a player and my wife as a a new wife in the NBA comfortable with how how things work in the NBA. Um, You know, we've stayed in touch over the years. He's a tremendous guy. He just retired um, from the University of Oklahoma and wish him the best in retirement. Um, Next couple coaches played for Terry Stotts, uh, took over for Lon Kruger. He had a completely different philosophy than Lon as far as how to run practice and how to deal with players. Lon, occasionally we would start practice late because Lon Kruger wanted to talk to guys. He wanted to to make sure he went up to each guy before practice, said hello, see how they were doing. Um, And some guys appreciated it, some guys didn't. Um, Where Terry Stotts took over, um, I remember a conversation we had my, my rookie year when I went in asking him what to do, what I needed to do to earn more minutes. And his response was, you're a rookie. You're lucky I'm even talking to you right now. And that really kind of uh, took me back and, and kind of really kind of jogged, joggled my, my emotions in, in my mind for a second because I'm like, hold on a second. I've always been a part of a team where you try to talk, talk to the coach to see what you need to improve on. You need to see where you're at um, to get better t- for individually but also for the team because we're all uh, on board to have the same um, – same results we want to win and so that was difficult for me um you know not to mention the fact that his view of what a backup point guard which is what I was at the time in the NBA I'm not going to argue that what he wanted was much different set of strengths and weaknesses as opposed to what I could provide um with my skill set as a player and where I was um with uh my point of my career in the NBA um, you know, we had our differences, um, but then when I went on later to have some success as a player um, a couple years later with the New Orleans Hornets, um, he was very gracious in, in, you know, our conversations about congratulating me for working, sticking with it, working hard, and then playing well. Um, he was recently obviously let go by the Blazers um, after, you know, a nine-year run, and I think that shows you a lot how coaches grow over the course of of their tenure as coaches. That was his third head coaching stop. It was by far his best. Um, but when you talk to or you listen to interviews of some of the better players in that Blazer organization, Damian Lillard, um, CJ McCollum, those guys really respected and liked playing for uh, Terry Stotts. And some of the, the comments you see, I've seen makes me see and think that a lot of Terry's philosophies uh, have evolved over the years and how he talks to players uh, how he handles young players and, and what he values, not to mention the style that they play. Um, they played in Portland versus the style that we played um, when he was the head coach at Atlanta. Mo Cheeks um, was another head coach I played for. Great guy. Um, you know, I really enjoyed playing for him. Uh, he was in a tough spot because, you know, we had one entrenched 
point guard as the starter, hands down, Damon Stoudemire. And then we had three point guards um, who were kind of battling it out in the rotation for, you know, those backup minutes. Myself, Omar Cook, and Eddie Gill. And none of the three of us distanced ourselves enough to really kind of become that guy as the backup for the last 35 games of the year or so. And so all three of us were kind of in a tough spot where if we made a mistake uh, or a glaring mistake, that person might not see the floor for three or four games until somebody else made a huge glaring mistake. And so I think, you know, Mo Cheeks was a great guy. He was fun to be around as a coach. Um, But the clarification of roles um, wasn't always there, uh, and that created a lot of confusion, at least for myself. And I would imagine Omar Cook and Eddie Gill felt the same, same way. Uh, next coach I played for in the NBA would have been Don Nelson. Obviously, he's a Hall of Famer, one of the, the uh, all-time winningest coaches. He never uh, – I didn't play for him long, but the thing I loved about Nelly was just his honesty. You know, his honesty of this is how we want to play, this is who we want to play through, uh, this is what you need to do. Um, he was very upfront and honest with everything, uh, almost to a fault when I played uh, in training camp for him years later. Um, and, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed my time in Dallas. I thought he was a tremendous uh, basketball mind that um, I was grateful and lucky to play for even for such a short time. Uh, Byron Scott is the next coach that um, – I played for. I, I owe a lot to Byron because I had my most successful run as, as a professional playing under Byron Scott, and I, a lot of it was due to opportunity. Some other guys were hurt, um, but then I had to go out and produce, and I had to go out and make the most of an opportunity that was in front of me when it was there. Um, the offense that uh, Byron ran, the Princeton offense, with a lot of, um, you know timing of cuts, timing of screens, dribble handoffs, pick and roll actions um, was very good for me. It was good because I had a, a had a, um, a an understanding and a knowledge of what my skill set was, how to set guys up, how to use my skill set to my advantage and the team's advantage within the offense that they were running. Um, you know, the hardest thing for Byron was, uh, for, for me and a lot of guys having played for Byron Scott, was some guys wanted to play faster. You know, the, the Princeton offense is a little slower-paced offense, um, which nowadays in the NBA wouldn't fly. There are pieces to it that I think would still be really good, but it would be hard to get teams to, and players to buy in consistently and running it, uh, even though when you've got the right personnel, it is unbelievably difficult to guard. And you can speed that offense up to a certain extent, but a lot of it is based off of ball movement, player movement, and sometimes you have to get that ball to the second or third side to be able to get the opportunity uh, with the defense breaking down to, to get an easy basket or an easy look. But, you know, the one, the one negative to Byron Scott was, um, I guess you could also look at it as a positive because we had a lot of young guys on the team that year, is, you know, his attention to work ethic. We didn't have days off with New Orleans could be a back-to-back we're back in the gym the next day at 9 a.m 10 a.m whatever it might be depending on travel situation uh very rarely did we have off days um we were there to work and we were there to practice we always um you know knew that coming in that we were going to have to um be ready to go and practice we were going to do certain drills every single day ones that he carried over from his time as a player for pat riley uh held true to his time as as a coach um, and I think that fit me well because I was somebody who was never afraid of work, uh, never afraid of putting in long hours. 
Um, but he rubbed some guys the wrong way, I know, with his approach. Um, but he was great for me uh, as a player in my NBA career. Um, next coach I played for would, uh, was Doc Rivers in Boston. And Doc Rivers uh, is a tremendous example of, of a coach um, who really knows his, his X and O's and really knows and is able to communicate with guys and get them to buy in and believe uh, of what's best for the team. And I say this because, you know, I, I, I signed with Boston. Uh, I was kind of expected to compete for a starting spot after having a nice year in New Orleans. Um, I, and, and I had issues with my Achilles tendon before I ruptured it in, in the summer, in the, the preseason. And I was never able to really play well enough in the preseason and early in the season to become that starting caliber guard that they were hoping for me. Um, and I take a lot of that on myself, just not playing well, just not executing, not making shots, not making the right reads. Um, so I take a lot of that responsibility. But the biggest thing I think about Doc Rivers, um, and I've said this a number of times to other people, is Doc Rivers was one of the very few coaches who put part of my struggles in the preseason on him. I remember sitting down with him uh, at TD North Bank Garden. I don't even know what their arena is called these days. But before our first game of the year, uh, first regular season game, we had a meeting and he, he called me in and we talked for 15 minutes. And he said, hey, right now, as of game one, you are our third point guard on the roster. Um, you're going to play, but that's how I see it. Within a short bit later, you know, I moved up and I, I played more of backup point guard minutes um, within, you know, a couple weeks of the season. But he was very upfront, honest in his assessment. He said, look, you haven't played the way that we thought um, you were capable of playing. You haven't played the way we thought you we wanted you to play. And, and I'm sure you feel that same way. I, and I said, yeah, I, I, I agree. I have played okay at times. I haven't played as well as I'd like. Um, I said, I'm going to keep working in that, working at it. I'm going to hang in there, and I'm going to do what I can when my time's ready. He said, okay, that's great to know you will get opportunities, which I did. Um, but then the next thing he said is one of the things that I will always remember and, and make me respect in Doc Rivers and, and know that he's got a great pulse on his team. He said, part of the reason I think you didn't play the way that we wanted you to is I didn't put you in enough pick and rolls. I didn't give you enough opportunities in the preseason to play with our core group of guys, being at that time it would have been Paul Pierce, uh, Rafe LaFrance, Ricky Davis. Um, I, I didn't put you in a position um, that would have given you the chance to have as much success. So I will take some of that. And so I really respected Doc for that, um, and I still do. Uh, next coach in the NBA played for would have been uh, Nate McMillan with the Blazers. Um, Nate is another coach similar to... Uh, Terry Stotts and that when you watch how he coaches then versus now it's completely evolved uh, he's playing a very fast up-tempo system uh, allowing the freedom the ability to shoot a ton of threes with Trey Young which is understandable it's, it's correct that's the way the game has gone and he's got a terrific point guard and Trey Young who can do those things um, but you know my my biggest thing with, with my career with the Blazers and Nate McMillan a lot of it was players and this would be me if I were really getting into coaches coaches gravitate towards players a lot of times that they view as similar to what they were 
or what they would be as a player. I guarantee you right now, if I'm a coach at the college level or at the NBA level, I'm going to gravitate towards smart point guards that can really shoot it and pass. I would overlook some of the defensive deficiencies if they can do the things on the offensive end that I valued, that I felt that I was good at. And so for Nate, you know, I thought that there was um, uh, not allegiance is not the right word, but there was more of a comfort level with the other younger point guard, Jarrett Jack, uh, than there was with myself or even Sergio Rodriguez, who was also a young player. But Jarrett Jack fit more of the mold of Nate McMillan, a bigger, uh, stronger point guard, someone who was much better on the defensive end. Um, and so, you know, I saw kind of Nate shifting in, in that way, which is, which I got, you know, it's just, it's one of the things that I saw as a coach, um, that he did. Uh, I thought Nate was very approachable. I thought Nate, um, you know, definitely was prepared. Um, I mean, I remember when the year I had with the Blazers as a player development coach, he was the head coach and, you know, I know he left no no stone unturned to to be prepared. He watched a ton of game film. He talked with his assistants. He did everything he could to game plan and be ready. Um, and I think now what you're seeing, in, like I mentioned in, with Atlanta, is his willingness to change with his roster and change his style of play. And so, um, you know, that was my experiences with Nate McMillan. The last NBA coach I had a ton of, uh, you know, experience or with would been playing for the Clippers and, and Mike Dunleavy, um, who spent a number of years in the NBA as head coach of a number of different teams, the Blazers, the Lakers, um, you know, the Clippers. And I, I think the thing that stands out to me about Mike Dunleavy is uh, I, I don't know if I've ever been around a bigger or better basketball mind. Um, you could throw a name out there um, and he could remember – uh, attributes to that player you could throw a time and score of a game and, and ask what that play was run or what it was called and he could just automatically throw it out there um, he has a number system to everything on the court so every action on the court correlates to a number on the offensive end for him and then flip side on the defensive end there would be a um, a color code or a color uh, attributed to what we wanted to do defensively. So, for example, a cross a, a cross screen would be a 12. So if you wanted a block-to-block -block screen to be, bring a post to the other block, uh, that's a 12 screen. A down screen would be a 6. So if, say, we're running an LA 12, it would be like a UCLA action to a 12, which would be a UCLA to a cross screen. Um, if there was a, another play that required a down screen, it would be the, the call plus a six. So we're really looking to, to create a six, a down screen. Now, this where it really got interesting and really made you think as a player or needed to know things on the fly were he could call LA 18. Well, 12 and plus six equals 18. So that's 18. So we're going to run UCLA to a cross screen down, down screen action. So LA 18. So... As a player, you had to know his number setup and his number uh, schemes really quickly and right off the bat. Um, and you had to know that offensively to play, but where it really became amazing to see how we thought the game was on the defensive end. Every team goes through their, their walkthroughs and their, their shoot-arounds to prepare for the other team. And you'll get those play calls from another team. So teams would run a lot of the same actions, but they would have their own different names to it. 
But where Mike really blew my mind was running down the floor, he would be able to quickly decipher what the other team was running, the call that they had, and then quickly relay it to us as the point guard getting back on defense and everyone else that they're running LA 18 action. That's what we call it. We already should know how to guard it with our schemes. That's what they're running as opposed to all of us trying to figure out uh, quickly on the fly what the other team is calling it. Um, and so that's where, you know, I thought Mike Dunleavy was a, was a, a basketball savant in those terms because he, he tied everything in so, so easily. Um, so lots of information there. Um, hopefully I didn't bore anybody that listened all the way through today's ISO episode, but you know, I get the question asked a lot. How was this guy as a coach? What was your relationship with his as a coach? What makes it different at the high school versus the college versus the NBA level? And I'm sure we can dive in deeper on this. And, I mean, we could even have, you know, a podcast episode strictly on high school coaches that I've been around that I've felt are, are game changers for kids, both athletically as well as just big picture-wise. And same goes for college and NBA um, you know, break it down even further. So for today's episode of the ISO, I'm Dan Dickow. It's been great talking or sharing experiences with coaches at many different levels. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network or professional. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.